Thank you, choir, and thank you, Gideons. What an honor to share this Sunday with the Gideons and the wonderful work that they do all over the world. The Bible says that it's strong enough to draw people all by itself, and it, and it does that. So we're grateful for the work of the Gideons. It's good to be here with you. I've worked with Texas Baptist for 31 years. A friend of mine said the other day, if you want to make that sound longer, introduce yourself as in your fourth decade with Texas Baptist. I'm not sure I want to do that, but it is good to be here. But I think this is the first time I've been in this church, been Nacogdoches many times, and have friends in this church, Bobby Smith and Brad Hale. We've known each other. How long ago was that? 20 plus years? Whoa, 30 plus years. Uh, we have a mutual friend uh, that we uh, came to know each other through golf. As a matter of fact, we played a little golf yesterday, Mike and Bobby and Denny, and uh, or we hit the ball around the course a little bit. Now, I've got to tell you, when I walked in the church earlier this morning and shook a few hands and they asked my name, and I said, uh, Chris Libram, I got looks. And uh, I said, yeah, it's my cousin. And so um, just kind of got that out of the way, but... Uh, Mike and I are cousins. Our, our dads uh, were brothers. Uh, Mike's dad's still here on earth. My dad's in heaven. And uh, they were, uh, we were, were the first two boys out of a long line of girls in that family. And so we came along. And uh, I think after the two of us came along, they were ready to get back on that girl line. Uh, but, uh, you know, several years ago in our work with Texas Baptist, uh, someone came in a meeting I was in and said, We need another board member from the Nacogdoches area, but we've got enough preachers, so we need a, need a layman. <clears throat> and I said, well, I know a good Christian layman. Uh, he's got integrity. He's a successful businessman, and uh, he just, he's just a great guy, and he'd be a great board member. That guy couldn't do it, so we asked Mike to come on our board <laughs> to, to, uh, to be a part of our executive board. And so... Uh, he heads up to Dallas tomorrow for the second meeting that he's been in. And, and uh, so far, he hadn't embarrassed me one bit. So we're, we're in good shape. But I love, I love my cousin, Tricia, and we've, uh, my wife, Cindy, we've been at their home this weekend. And just a, just a beautiful experience. I want you to, to find the book of Nehemiah. And while you're doing that, I want to present to your church um, some recognition. I direct the Cooperative Program Ministries. Cooperative program is the genius of Baptist work for about 90 years. 90 years ago, Baptists realized there were some big things we needed to do in Texas, in the United States, and around the world. And the only way we were going to be able to do that successfully was to cooperate. And so the cooperative program was born. And over these 90 years, uh, thousands and thousands of, of foreign missionaries and missionaries here in the United States, in Texas, so many wonderful things have happened in those 90 years, we have built some wonderful institutions. In Texas, we have nine Baptist universities. There's about 36,000 students that attend those universities. In those universities, there's almost 5,000 men and women that are training for ministry. And your cooperative program dollars uh, have helped those universities in different ways through the years. Mainly today, the money that you give to the cooperative program is money that goes for scholarships to help ministerial students. Scholarships have always been important. When I went to school, when you went to school, it was a good thing to have scholarship. But let me tell you why, for the gospel, it is so essential today. Let's take a young high school senior, 
with a passion to go into ministry, goes to one of our Baptist schools without scholarships, begins to plan for ministry, maybe feels a call to mission, meets a young lady, she has that same call. They continue that undergraduate work with no scholarship. And then they go on to seminary to get that training, and again with no scholarship. And they graduate from seminary with a degree, diploma in one hand, a passion in their heart, but you know what they have right here, a mortgage-sized debt that might prevent them from pastoring that first small church, or it could prevent them from even being able to accept a call to missions uh, because they could not service that note. And so today, I want you to know one of the main things that your money does, it, it helps to provide scholarships for those that are preparing Baptist Student Ministry, I know you have a great BSM here. At Stephen F. Austin, you have your BSU building. Your cooperative program monies through these years have helped to build 24 of those buildings. We have a building like that on every major campus in Texas. It's about the closest we're ever going to get to having a church on the middle of the UT campus, but we have one there. Uh, a BSM center with, a, with staff that's there. Uh, touching about 150,000 students every year. I, I could go on and on, but I know our time is short today. But I want to say on the behalf of millions through these years that have been the recipients of your cooperative program money, thank you, thank you very much. And Brad, if you would come, I want to present this little clock to you. It's a very nice Da Vinci clock, and it says Texas Baptist on the front. And I was looking at the giving records for this church, and every year you send approximately to Texas Baptists for our work here in Texas about $180,000. And all that money is spent on missions work here in Texas. But you ask us to forward some money owing to the Southern Baptist Convention. And then you give to the Mary Hill Davis offering, Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong. When you total all of that up, it's about $300,000 that this church sends out every year. Over 10 years, that's $3 million. Yes. And that is simply Acts 1-8 money. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, you have determined. I suspect there's $3 million that would fix something around here if you had it, didn't. But you have decided as a church that, that God has blessed you with that money and that God's commandment is that we reach all the world and that you give that money. This clock on the back says the First Baptist Church Nacogdoches. Out of 5,333 churches in Texas that are part of the cooperative program, your church is the 19th largest gift. So, on behalf of so many, I want to say thank you. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. You bet. I want to speak to you this morning from <clears throat> one of my heroes in Scripture. We all have heroes. We all have those people who maybe uh, we've gravitated to because we've read them and we, we, we just have a special uh, thought about them. And that's Nehemiah for me, probably more than any other person in Scripture I think Nehemiah typifies what it means to be a great Christian leader. You know, your church is in the middle. It's in the in-between. It's in the interim. Uh, you've had a wonderful pastor for so many years, and now he's enjoying his retirement. And uh, you're looking for that new under-shepherd. And when we think about Christian leadership, sometimes we think, well, this is the, this is the, this is the message for the staff because they're the Christian leaders around this place. But in scripture, leadership is divided among all of us. It's just not for the hired hands, it's for all of us. And probably now more than ever before, when you think about leadership and you think about this church, it is time for everyone to step forward and to be that leader. 
And I think no one typifies that leadership more than Nehemiah. I'm going to be speaking today from the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah. Now, hang on. We're going to be out on time, okay? We're not going verse by verse. But the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah contain a wonderful story, just a beautiful story about Nehemiah and some of the qualities of leadership uh, that he possessed. Now, we don't have time to read that, so if you would allow me, let me just tell you the story of the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in the court of Artaxerxes. Now, that was a job. He got paid. Uh, his job was to test the food for the king. Uh, it was, wasn't uncommon to overthrow a kingdom, and one way to overthrow the kingdom was to get rid of the king first, and one convenient way to do that was to poison his food, his drink. So a good king, a smart king, always had someone in his employment that he trusted to test the food, to test the drink, just to be sure that it was safe. Well, that was Nehemiah's job. Word came to Nehemiah that there had been destruction in Jerusalem, that many of the buildings had been torn down, that the walls that encircled the city had come down completely, and this bothered Nehemiah. It bothered him greatly. That, that wall not only represented the definition of their land, but it, it, was, uh, uh, it was protection. So those two things being gone really, really uh, emotionally affected Nehemiah. Well, his boss, the king, recognized that he was having a tough time with this. And he asked him what was wrong and he told him. And then Nehemiah said, would you give me the time off so I could go back to Jerusalem a distance away and so I could help to rebuild that wall? The king said, yes, gave him the time off, maybe the first recorded mission trip in scripture. Uh, and Nehemiah went and in about 52 days, he was responsible for organizing the people and for helping to rebuild the wall around that city. Now that is the Libram version of the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah. What I'd like to do is to go back and pick out just four uh, qualities and characteristics of a leader. There are dozens found not only in these first six chapters, uh, but even in the whole book of Nehemiah. And I hope you'll take time maybe even this afternoon just to read those first six uh, as, we, as we run through these real quick. But if you're taking notes, and I know in your, uh, in your worship guide there, there's a place for you to take notes. I hope you will. That first characteristic I want you to know about a great Christian leader is that he had compassion. Nehemiah had compassion. Let me begin reading in chapter 1, beginning with verse 3 of chapter 1 of Nehemiah. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, I won't read it, but the rest of that chapter is one of the most heart-wrenching, compassionate prayers recorded in Scripture. His heart was broken. Now, I remind you, Nehemiah had, had it going good. We don't know how much he made. or We don't know all the conditions, but we... We can assume from his job and what he did and the importance of it that things were going well for Nehemiah. Word had come back from friends and from family that there'd been trouble in Jerusalem and it bothered him. And it, it, it bothered him terribly to the point that his boss recognized it. Now, it would have been okay. It would have been enough. No one would have thought less of him had he just written out a check and a little note, sent it to his friends, sent it to his family and say, Understand you're having trouble. Maybe this will help out. We'll be praying for you back here. That would have been okay. That would be enough. 
But it went deeper than that. He had compassion. Now, certainly he knew some of the people. He had family there. But most of the people that were involved in this tragedy, he did not know. And I think this is an insight into the character of Nehemiah is that he had compassion. But not just regular, ordinary, everyday compassion. He had compassion for people that he didn't even know. Now, let's face it, that compassion, uh, that, that, that surface kind of compassion we all have, the saved and the unsaved, it's that compassion you have for those that you love. It's that passion that comes automatically. And that's easy to come by. Friends, family, neighbors, uh, loved ones, those folks that we reach out to in a time of need. That, uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to build that up. That just kind of comes with the equipment, doesn't it? But what Nehemiah was demonstrating here, and I, what I think God is trying to show us in this passage, is that he had compassion for people that he didn't even know. What a great characteristic a leader needs to have is that he cares for people, not just the people he knows, but the people he or she that they don't know. Well, how do you do that? Well, I'm sure your church does this in many ways. I do not know this for a fact, but I would suspect your church has a benevolence ministry that you reach out to people in this community, people who need help with food, people who need help maybe with a, with a bill or two, or people... Clothing, those kinds of things, you reach out to that. You do that for people that you don't even know. You don't give them that money in the week and say, now listen, Sunday morning, we want you lining up here and thanking the people of First Baptist Church for that food. That'd be crazy. That would be so insensitive and rude. You're helping those people that you don't even know. I mentioned to you about the cooperative program. Every week you tithe, you give to this church, and you as a church decide, you know what, we're going to take this much and we're going to give it to people that we don't even know. Certainly there's ways to report that. I mentioned to you, uh, jokingly, Mike is on our board. We're glad to have him. And I, when they did say they needed a layman from Nacogdoches, I knew exactly who they needed. I just was hoping that his name wouldn't prevent them from selecting him to be on our board. But um, he'll meet tomorrow. And uh, he and other members of this board will look at the budget. They'll look at how things are spent. Uh, at, and so there is accountability for what you do, but you don't know those people. But today, every minute, every day, everywhere, that cooperative program is reaching out to millions and millions of people, compassion that you don't even know. I could share with you statistic upon statistic till it made you uh, roll your eyes back about the cooperative program. And they're very impressive where your money goes and how it's used and how we stretch it. But it's really the stories about the cooperative program that I think touch our heart, that help us realize that it really is worth uh, the value of partnership. Let me tell you a quick story about the cooperative program and how it helped at least one family. And the story I'm going to tell you goes way back to depression years. This is 1933. There was a young girl who lived in Big Spring, Texas. Her name was Ella Taylor. At eight years of age, her mother died. Her father was alive, but he had a lot of problems. He had emotional problems. He had um, mental problems. He probably had the kind of problems that today they could fix pretty easily with pills and with drugs and with therapy. But this was 1933. It became apparent to that community in Big Spring that Mr. Taylor was not going to be able to take care of those kids. 
There was a Baptist pastor in Big Spring at the East 4th Street Baptist Church, a church that participated in the cooperative program, a church that knew about an institution in Dallas called Buckner Orphan's Home. You've heard of it. It's now Buckner International has gone much wider than just an orphanage. But back then it was just an orphanage on the east side of Dallas County. That pastor took Ella and her brother and drove them in his car to Dallas, Texas. Now the Taylors weren't Baptist. They weren't even Christians. They were nothing. They had no faith. But that pastor knew that that orphanage was not just for Baptist orphans. That was for orphans, kids who needed a family. And so he took Ella and her brother and placed them in the Buckner Orphans Home. Well, within just a few months of this, in East Texas, Kilgore, close to here, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a little boy named James, and he was standing at the edge of the grave of his father. His mother had died a year previously in Arkansas. They had moved the family to Texas. This was during oil boom, and James's dad uh, worked on those, uh, those oil rigs, built those wooden oil rigs that you see in the historical picture. Wanted to start a new life for the family, but it didn't work out that way. So there he was, James, eight years of age, no mother, no father, no place to go. The same thing happened in Kilgore. The pastor of the First Baptist Church in Kilgore knew about a place that Baptists had built, cooperating together, the Buckner Orphan's Home. So he took James and his younger brother, and they came to the Buckner Orphan's Home, and that's where they were placed. Well, Ella and James... Both came within just a few months of each other, eight years of age. They would stay there 10 years. You stayed in the orphanage till you graduated from high school. So you would suspect they would know each other, and they did. And during junior high school, high school years, they began to develop a little romance and date, however you date in an orphanage. I'm not sure how you do that, but uh, they began to, to fall in love. And when you graduated from high school, that is when you left the orphanage. And soon after they graduated from high school, Ella and James were married. There they are. A picture of them just soon after they were married, after they uh, uh, got out of the orphanage. They moved to East Dallas, set up their home in East Dallas, joined the Munger Place Baptist Church, and became very active in that church, began that spiritual journey that they had they had started at Buckner when they were taught those things, and they continued that, joined that church, and were very active members of that church. And then they began to start their family. And you know what was a product of their family just a few years later? Me. I've just told you the story of my mom and dad. And that little brother I was talking about is Mike's dad. This cooperation thing works. Buckner Baptist, this church back in those years provided a place for my mom and dad to grow up. During depression years, it provided for them valuable things like food and lodging, clothing, education, health care, all those things that were, that were hard to come by during those years. Baptist provided those for my parents. But the most important thing that, that Buckner Orphan's Home provided my parents, Mike's dad, was an opportunity to meet Jesus. They didn't come from that kind of background. And you know what my mom and dad did with that? They passed it down to me and to my brother and to my two sisters. 
And you know what we've done with that? We've passed it down to our children. And you know what our children are doing? They're in the process of handing it down to their children. Give us that next slide. That's 28 of them right there. I love that picture because we all look skinny. (laughs) But that was a picture at my mother's 90th birthday celebration. And there are 28 uh, Libram or Libram descendants, all from mom and dad in that picture. Uh, My brother and two sisters and their family. Everyone in that picture that is old enough, that is of age, is a believer. Every one of them are Baptist, except for one family there that slipped off to the Methodist church, okay? It's okay, we'll let them do it. By the way, that Methodist family, their daughter is going to be the youth intern at the First Methodist Church in Rockwall this summer. Here's the point. Baptist didn't just change the life of two people, my mom and dad. To this point, it changed 28 And there's a 29th one in that picture that you can't see that we'll see in October. Um, This thing works. Churches like yours, back in those years, without thinking about it really, had compassion for people that they didn't even know. And two of those people they didn't know were my mom and dad. Quickly, let's move on to that second characteristic I want you to know about Nehemiah. We're going to move over to chapter, chapter 2. Second characteristic I want you to know about Nehemiah is that he was a great organizer. He was a great planner. We'll begin reading in verse 7. I also said to him, if it please the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive at Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he'll give me timber for the beams of the gates, for the citadel, for the temple, and for the city walls, and for the residence I will occupy And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. Here's what's happening. As I told you, the king said, you can take the time off. And Nehemiah says, hey, before I go, king, I want to ask two things. I need a passport. Can you give me a letter, a signed letter, so as I go from country to country, I can get through without any kind of disturbance. And the second thing he wanted, he said, I need your credit card. Because he knew when he got to Jerusalem, he was going to need stuff. He was going to need supplies. Now, this is a little insight into his character again, into his thinking processes. He realized readily that he had a God-sized task ahead of him. And he realized that if it was a God-sized task, task, it was going to need a God-sized plan. It was going to need to be organized. You know, he could have just run off and thought, I got the time off. I'm going to get there. I know I can talk my way through those borders. Certainly there's a lumber yard in Jerusalem. I can get stuff. He could have done all of that. He could have rationalized that and just taken off. But it, but it shows us here was a man who thought through, who was very critical and very specific in his thinking, and he wanted to give God the best. God deserves our best. You know, the principle of the tithe is not just about money. The principle of the tithe is the principle of first fruits, certainly first fruits of our money, but first fruits of who you are. You know, there, there are probably all kinds of different professions here in this room, from this city, uh, school teachers, bankers, uh, home builders, uh, all kinds of different ones, businessmen, businesswomen, and you all do things very well. 
you would not think of doing anything but giving the best of your abilities from Monday to Friday. But you know, those skills that you have, those leadership skills that you have, the quality that you provide, you need to offer to this church as a tithe. What is there that you do so well that this church could use? They could use your expertise. You think, oh, well, I, I, they can't. Well, you would be surprised how that could be used. If not here in this church, if not here in this facility, maybe in a missions context or, or many other ways. I firmly believe that God works best through prepared people. I wish there was that scripture I could quote you. I wish I could give you a, a chapter and verse for that, that God works best through prepared people. But it's not in there. About the closest thing is 1 Corinthians 14, 40, where it says, Paul says to the church at Corinth, let everything be done in a proper and orderly manner. But I'm telling you, the principle of organization permeates the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Moses was an example of leadership, of quality, of preparation. If you remember the story, he got a little shaky at the first, and then he divided it up. He divided up the responsibilities. Uh, when you think about Noah, you know, God didn't just come to Noah and say, just, just get you a, build a boat, just get it done. He said, build it this big, this wide, cover it with this, fill it with this. It was very, very specific, very organized. Jesus Christ himself. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to feed 5,000 people. I've had to do that both in a controlled setting and in a disaster setting. And it takes a lot of planning to feed 5,000 people lunch. You just don't get up out of your chair about 10 o'clock in the morning and say, well, I wonder what we're going to have for lunch today for these 5,000 people. You got to get a run and start. And what did Jesus and his disciples do? They fed 5,000 people and they weren't just normal people. They were hungry people, impatient people. And it says that they sat them down, they fed them, they fed them until they were full. And then what did they do? They accounted for what was left over. I'm saying that God honors preparation. And shouldn't we give the best of who we are, the best of the skills and the talents that God has given us, that you give a tithe of that, you give a portion of that to your church. The third thing I want you to know about Nehemiah is found over, we're going to move on over to the, uh, fourth, uh, the fourth chapter. Fourth chapter of Nehemiah beginning in verse 1. We begin to understand here that uh, Nehemiah was a tough old boot. He wasn't going to give up. And he was not easily discouraged. Begin reading in verse 1. When Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they... Will they Restore the wall. Will they offer a sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side and said, what are they building? And even if a fox climbed on it, it would break down their walls of stones. I hope you pick up all the sarcasm in that because it's there. Here's the scene. This is the way I picture it. Nehemiah is on the wall. They're building. It's happening. It's coming up. And these two local yokels come up, Sambalat and Tobiah. And they said, and what are you doing? And even if you do it, it's going to fall down. Now, we can't really understand completely why they were so critical and tried to discourage Nehemiah. 
There could have been some racial issues that was present there. It could have been just pure jealousy that these two local guys were a bit embarrassed that this young man came from a distance away and he was able to get the job done. We're not sure why. It's really not as important as the fact is they were trying to slow him down. They were trying to discourage him. Now, they, Nehemiah was as human as you and I. He would have loved for them to have brought out banners that said, way to go, Nehemiah. Thanks for coming. They, he would have rather them have brought picnic baskets and water and, and celebration. That would have made Nehemiah feel better. It would have made his job easier. But that didn't happen. But what was Nehemiah's response, even in the face of discouragement? He kept on. Why? Simple. Because God had called him to that task. He knew it. He knew that was a divine call that he had to rebuild that wall. <clears throat> and even in the face of discouragement, he wasn't going to stop. Later on, in the, as you will read, not only were the enemies against him, but his friends were against him. Now that's when it gets tough. You're looking for your enemies to come at you. You're waiting for that. But it's when your friends, they began, those that were working with Nehemiah were saying, we're building with one hand and fighting with another, a shovel and a sword. And we can't, and, and you know what Nehemiah's response to his workers is, we can do this because we serve an awesome God. Now I'm not sure what God's called you to do, but I can tell you this, that if you're a born again saved believer, He's called you to do something. He didn't just call, cause you to, to get saved and to sit. There's something that he wants you to do. Now, it may not be something as specific or as physical as a wall. It may not be that. He might have called you to start a ministry or to be a part of a ministry or to start initiative here in the church, but God's called you to do that. He's called you to do something. He's gifted you. He's given you skills. There's some things that you do better than the person next to you. And God wants you to use that. And whatever God has called you to do, I can guarantee you that if you get after it, you're going to get discouraged. It's called the devil. He doesn't want you to be successful. So it's important as you start out on that, that you understand that and that you, that you are single-minded, that you are focused. And that when you see the devil coming, you say, here he comes. I knew he'd be here, but I'm going to keep on doing it. You know, it would have been so easy for Nehemiah to say, I don't have to put up with this. I got a cush job back there. I came here to help you. And this is what I get. Fooey on you. I'm going home. He could have done that, but he didn't. Why? Because God had called him that task. So I'm not sure what it is. But if God's called you to it, you might even get to that point where you say, you know, I've tried teaching this junior high boys Sunday school class and I don't have to put up with that. You know what? Maybe you do if God's called you to it. The last thing I want you to know about Nehemiah is over in chapter six. See how quickly we went through six chapters of the book of Nehemiah. Tell your interim pastor about that and see how he does on that. We finished the wall. It's, it's, it's completed. And what we find in, uh, in the sixth chapter is 
the, 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 uh, the, the residents and the buildings still need a lot of work, but the wall is up. And so what we have recorded here in the sixth chapter, verse 15, is really the, somewhat of a dedication of the wall. So the wall was completed in about 52 days. When all the enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Now, I read that very quickly, and you read it very quickly, but I'm telling you, there's power in those sentences. What happened was, Nehemiah was a part of a God thing, and people saw it that way. Now, you know that in that time, there were people who, there were dozens of gods. They worshiped all, the sun, the moon, the ocean. There were all kinds of gods. And these people who worshiped many, many gods, they watched. And they watched Nehemiah. And they knew that Nehemiah's God was that one true God, Jehovah, the God we honor and worship. And they saw what God did through Nehemiah. And what was their reaction? A big old gulp. (laughs) They were scared. They lost their self-confidence because they realized Nehemiah's God did it. Again, another peek into his character. Nehemiah did his work in such a way that God received the glory. Read the passage. It doesn't say Nehemiah did it with God's help. It doesn't say that. Nehemiah is not a part of, that, of that, those verses. It's all about God. And it tells us that Nehemiah did his work in such a way that people saw right through him and saw that the only way this happened was through God. Application is so simple. What is there about our lives? What is there about our church? What is there about what we do day in and day out that is so godly and that's so, so God-anointed that people around you, their response isn't, hey, boy, that guy's a pretty good Christian. But rather their response is, boy, he worships a great God. Look what God did in this situation. And you know, this pertains more than just what happens in this room. It, it, it's more outside this room. You know, what is there about neighbors and coworkers and friends about the things you say or the things you don't say, the things you do or that you don't do that are so God-controlled, so God-honoring, so godly-directed that people's response is, oh yeah, that's God. I know that, I know that guy, he, he reads this, and I'm sure that book says in there that's what he or she is supposed to do. That's why they did that. That God receives the glory for that. You've heard that expression that you may be the Jesus that some will ever read, some will ever see. There's a wonderful story uh, out of a book written by Tony Campolo, Who Switched the Price Tags? And Tony tells a story about a a drunk named Joe. He would go to one of these rescue missions that you would see in many metropolitan downtown cities. And one night, Joe, in that pre-service, before the meal service, uh, Joe was miraculously saved. Life turned around. From that point forward, Joe served in that mission center. He uh, he volunteered. He would... He would clean up after some sick alcoholic. He would serve. Uh, he just became the most Christ-like servant 
that anyone around there had seen. His life turned around completely. Well, one night, as these, as these operations, you know, you have, a, you have a meal for the homeless, but just before that, you have a service. And uh, at one of, those, one of those pre-meal services, there was another drunk that came walking down the aisle, knelt at the altar, and kept shouting, uh, make me like Joe, make me like Joe, make me like Joe. Well, the gentleman that was preaching kind of leaned down and quietly said, I, I think what you mean to say is make me like Jesus. And the drunk looked up at the pastor and he said, is he like Joe? He didn't know Jesus. He, he knew Joe. And he knew what Joe represented was God because God was living in Joe's life. And he might have got the terms mixed up, but in his own way, he was saying, make me like Jesus because he wanted to be like Joe. Many other characteristics we could talk about Nehemiah, but what I leave with you today is that he had compassion, not just ordinary, common, easy to come by compassion, but compassion for people didn't even know. He was a great planner. He was an organizer. It's important. You get your best work done that way. Even in the face of discouragement, what did he do? He kept on. Why? God called him to it. But when it was all said and done, when they were passing out the trophies, when they were giving the pats on the back, Nehemiah did his work in such a way that God received the glory. Would you stand with me? Bow your heads. I'm not sure <clears throat> what your decision to make today is, is. I'm not sure how God has worked in your life in this sermon. I'm not sure how he's worked in your life this week. But uh, we'll have a time of invitation. I love being a Baptist for many, many reasons. One, I love this part of our faith. We, we worship in different ways, music, giving, the word. Now it's your time to respond to that if God's calling you. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, I pray for this time of invitation that those here today that you're speaking to, they may not even know what, what that decision is, but you're speaking to their heart and they would come. I pray that they would be responsive as you work and direct in their life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Brad will be up here in front to receive you. If God's speaking to your heart, even if you don't know what it is, I hope you'll come. We'll help you with that as we sing.